From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We have different music today because it's our holiday special. A chance to get away from the rush of environmental news, to relax and listen to some music, including the sweet sounds of the Irish harp. And we'll have stories as well, some sad and some that emphasize the unity of humanity in the face of rampant hate, as when a Pakistani man shows his son the book that lists all his family's ancestors. His father said you asked about the hate. Remember, I wanted you to see this. I wanted you to see that God lives in everything. And don't you ever let anyone tell you to hate another. Because you could see they're all here. Muslims, Sikh, Hindus, Christians, Jews, they are all your family. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, it's the Living on Earth Holiday Special. I'm Steve Kerwood. Our theme today is hope at this time of short days and new years, and we're listening to an Irish harp as we begin with a visit to the magical world of brownies and leprechauns and kelpies and fairies of the ancient Celtic culture, another world that Celts felt they could glimpse from this one, especially at this time of year. Singer, storyteller, and harpist Onya Minogue is our guide, and she joins us now with an old-fashioned horn dance, the traditional dance of hunting the wren and the mysterious selkie. Onya Minogue, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So our theme today is hope, but in Northern Europe, the land of the Celts, the days are, well, they're extraordinarily short this time of year. All that darkness, how could people feel a sense of hope? Well, it seems to be intrinsic to the human condition. And, you know, long before there was a Christmas or a Hanukkah or a Kwanzaa, Midwinter was a holy time, I think, for people, not just in the Celtic countries, but all over the world. And in my culture, in the old um, Irish and Celtic tradition, the world was seen as a wheel of life and each season was like a journey. None was more deeply felt than the journey of December through the winter months and the winter solstice in particular, which is the year's shortest day. And so there were rituals of the season and they weren't, you know, simply for merriment. They served as a great, a great function. And because it was such a dark month, it was kind of dangerous. We, we, it's very hard for us to think of a time before electricity. You know, a lot of these traditions involved going door to door. And uh, it was very important to check in on your neighbours, checking the woodpile and making sure everybody was safe and well. So a lot of these traditions of going door to door served that function very usefully. This dance uh, called the Horn Dance is a wonderful dance where uh, eight men ran through the village with anchor heads and it was thought to bring in good luck for the new year. And it's still performed today in Abbots Bromley in Staffordshire on New Year's Day. It's an unbroken tradition. What about the other traditional dance called hunting the wren? Uh, what's that all about? Well, hunting the wren is 
an unbroken tradition that's gone on in Ireland as long as anyone can remember. And originally, it's believed that uh, St. Stephen was betrayed by a chattering wren. Also before that, it's believed that the, the wren was the wisest of all birds and used to be hunted down and passed around again to bring in good luck for the new year. So the tradition is people go from house to house playing music. It's another of the visiting traditions. And we play for people and play music and pass the hat. And Wren boys, they often dress up actually in straw. They're often called straw boys. And a lot of tomfoolery going on. It's good fun. And this is the day after Christmas. It's the day after Christmas Day, which is a fantastic day to leave the house, get up after all that food and move about the countryside. It's a huge visiting day. I used to do it and have written a little piece here for you that I hope you enjoy. So this is a powerful time of year in the Celtic world. And uh, what about those beliefs that especially this time of year, one could just, well, you know, slip between the world of the everyday and the world of gods and fairies? Yes, I think that idea of um, sort of a crack between here and the other world is very prevalent at that time of year. And um, the Celts believed that the veil between the worlds was very thin and that um, we might see the ancients uh, um, or the gods and the gods might see us. Anything in states of betweenness was very, very powerful. So you wanted to be somewhere that was like by the seashore, which was neither land nor sea. And even holly was considered powerful at that time because it was neither tree nor bush. And um, they loved places where parishes met or waters met or even roads met because these were, again, seams or or cracks, just like cracks in the year, and therefore they had their own sense of magic about them. Well, tell me more. What were these other worlds? Well, broadly speaking, within the Irish tradition, there were three other worlds. One was the land beneath the ground, and the other was Chirnanog, which translates from the Gaelic to land of perpetual youth. And then there's the land beneath the sea. What, what we have to remember about... Um, this whole other world is that when people are very close to the land in an agricultural cycle, it's so real to them. And when people sort of live and work on the sea, the idea of having their other world beneath them and these creatures coming to life, their stories are based on these ideas as opposed to a heaven, which we're much more familiar with. And Onya, what about this notion that, uh, that people can interact with creatures from other worlds? I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the selkie, the creature from underneath the sea. So the selkie is basically a seal and a human man or woman falls in love with this seal and gets the seal to agree to come to land. And sometimes it's through trickery, but usually they actually fall in love and the seal sheds her skin. And sometimes he hides the skin for her or sometimes she hides it herself. And invariably over time, either she finds the skin or one of her children do. And she just feels compelled. She can't help herself. She puts it back on. And of course, once she does, she has to return to the water because that's her true home. And it creates great sadness. 
So, Anya, I understand that you have a song that describes this doomed love. Please, sing it for us now. Of course. I am a man upon the land. I am a sulky in the sea. such a sad story. Um, hey, before you go, I seem to remember that the bonfire was big at ancient winter solstice festivals. Why? I think, you know, particularly in Western Europe uh, this time of year, the idea, I think, was that the fire would beseech the year to stay alive, like literally keep the sun in the sky. And um, all of these festivals are really festivals of light. And it's literally a means of keeping the year alive. I often think of John Lennon, you know, he always says, you know, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. Probably the old Irish would have said, we're busy being born and busy dying, that we have that vital system that both are always going on at the same time. And that soul is just just that one moment where it it all stops just for a moment. Anya Minogue, you've taken us to the horn dance. We've hunted the wren. We've met a selkie. So now please give us some hope for the new year that's coming. Well, I always love to turn to the words of Susan Cooper and one of my favourite poems that get me through the winter. It's called The Shortest Day. And so the shortest day came and the year died. And everywhere down the centuries of the snow-white world came people singing, dancing to drive the dark away. They lighted candles in the winter trees. They hung their homes with evergreen. They burned beseeching fires all night long to keep the year alive. And when the New Year's sunshine blazed awake, they shouted, reveling. Through all the frosty ages, you can hear them echoing behind us. Listen, all the long echoes sing the same delight this shortest day. As promise wakens in the sleeping land, they carol, feast, give thanks, and dearly love their friends and hope for peace. And so do we here now, this year and every year. Welcome, Yule. Welcome, Yule. Anya Minogue is a harpist and folklorist from Tipperary. These days she celebrates the season in Boston.
It's the Living on Earth Holiday Special. I'm Steve Kerwood. At this time, we take a break from the pressing issues in the news cycle and celebrate the season with some storytelling. We're listening to music from Sparky and Rhonda Rucker now. They're a husband and wife duo, folk and blues musicians and storytellers based in Tennessee. Their performances are filled with original and traditional songs and tales. Welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Now, as I understand it, both of you have preachers in your family. Uh, how much did life revolve around the church? Well, I'll tell you, in my family, it was everything. My grandfather, Bishop John Lindsay Rucker of the Church of God, comma, sanctified church. And I always like to say it that way because, you know, just by the very name of it, it implies that all other churches are not sanctified. You know, and that's, you know, you know that old saying, everybody thinks they're the only ones going to be in heaven, you know. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Rhonda? Yeah, my uncle was a preacher. He was a preacher in the Methodist Church in, uh, excuse me, the the United Methodist Church, comma, unsanctified. (laughs) (laughs) But they move people around in the Methodist Church, and uh, the preachers, they kind of do musical chairs every so often. And so he would be uh, moved in various places out in the state of Kentucky. And so come holiday season, that's where we would go. We'd go to, uh, to their house and... Uh, everybody would gather there, but it was always a new town that we were going to, a new house and whatnot. But it was great gathering. Uh, that's one of my favorite things about the holidays is getting to be around the family members. Yeah, especially, you know, gathering together with the family. And because, yeah. and, uh, yeah, uh, you know, my, I was fortunate to get to know my grandmother there at my grandmother's table. Gosh, she was a wonderful cook. She she could cook the beaten biscuits now, I know a lot of people don't know about beaten biscuits, but those, there was a special way that she'd mix them up and then they'd put these fork holes in them. And she would put them in a big old mixing bowl and put a linen cloth over the top of them and they would stay fresh for a week. And the reason I know that because she'd cook them on Sunday and I'd come over there the next Saturday. And before I'd say anything else, I'd come running in and she'd just point to the kitchen. They're in there. And I'd go in and grab one of those biscuits out of that bowl, bite into it. It was just like a just come out of it. Oh, and of course, like I said, there was a big family. There were six boys, six girls in that family. And every one of those women had their own specialty that they would cook. My Aunt Babe, she made cha-chow. Now, I don't, you know, I don't know if northern folk know about cha-chow, but some people, I guess they call it relish. <laughs> but we call it cha-chow, but we actually call it cha-chow. And she would make this stuff, and I mean, it was hot. You know, it had peppers and, and cabbage in it and whatnot. And, you know, she died with that recipe. Nobody ever learned how to make Aunt Babe's cha-cha. But you know what? Everybody had jars of it after she died. And I'm talking about it. It was like gold, you know. You'd be at a, me- at, at a meal, and somebody would go in and come out with a jar, and they'd say, I've got one of the Aunt Babe's jars of cha-cha. And it was after she had died, and, then, and there we were sitting there eating that cha-cha. Oh, it was good. It was you know, her legacy. Her legacy, yeah. <laughs> and she, and you know, it's what you put on pinto beans and and turnip greens. Oh, it was good. Rhonda, what was it like for you at the holidays when it came to food? Well, I, I mean, we usually had turkey and dressing and and that kind of thing, and on holidays, and somebody usually did a ham as well. 
But um, I tell you what, what excited me more than anything was the dessert. And it usually included chocolate, <laughs> which I still love. But uh, we would go to my aunt's house. She always bought these, like, ice cream things that were in the shape of a Christmas tree or a Santa Claus or Aunt something Elsie. like that. Aunt Elsie, yeah. And, boy, we just didn't get that at home, you know. My, my mom wouldn't do that. But um, the, the big thing was being around all my cousins and visiting and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You're all sitting around this huge, huge table and everybody telling stories. So it was it was a wonderful time in the church. Oh man, there's just wonderful people in the church. In fact, I'm old enough that there was always somebody down in the front row, you know, in 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 that uh, the amen corner that people whispered and say, "You know that sister Lucy. You know, you know sister Lucy used to be a slave." And it's amazing to me to realize that that in my lifetime I met people who had been slaves. So, Sparky, you're uh, not only a performer, but uh, you're a historian of sorts and a teller of traditional African-American tales. Uh, and I understand that some of your stories do go back to slave times. Now, our theme for this holiday special is hope. What was there in the way of hope for slaves on a plantation in the South? Well, you know, Christmas, for one thing, it meant you would have a couple of days off. And it was time for you to get that one present from the master. And usually it was just another pair of shoes so that you wouldn't have trouble working out there in the fields. Or if you're one of the younger kids, you'd get a new, you know, the kids usually ran barefoot, but they'd get this one sort of a long shirt that they would wear that would come down to about their knees. But it also meant that they would get finally one good meal. The master would uh, maybe let, let the slaves have one of his suckling pigs. And there was a story that they used to tell. You know, every culture has tricksters. The people who come from the British Isles, they tell stories about Jack, the Jack tales, Jack and the Beanstalk, Jack the Giant Killer. The uh, Native Americans, they would tell stories about Old Man Coyote. He was the trickster. You know, the trickster is there not to be something mean to you, but the trickster is there to give you another way. You know, it's like coming to a fork in the road and you're trying to decide which way to go and the trickster's there to make you take the road you wouldn't take. And that's to keep your life from becoming so stale. And so they would tell stories to the kids about Br'er Rabbit because, you know, Br'er Rabbit was the the rabbit that he was the animal that all the other animals, even though they were supposed to be his friends, they were all meat eaters. Br'er Rabbit was a vegetarian. And, of course, <laughs> Br'er Rabbit was also on the menu for everybody else. So he had he was too small to be able to fight Br'er Bear and Br'er Fox and Br'er Wolf. So he had to use his brains instead of his brawn to overcome. But when the slaves at night, the adults, they wouldn't tell the stories of Br'er Rabbit to each other, but they'd tell stories about a slave who could not be controlled, who was a trickster. And his name was High John the Conqueror. And uh, one of my favorite stories is telling about John and the master's pigs. Because John, you know, you know, even today, everybody is always talking about bacon, everything, and, you know, all the hamburger places always talking about loading bacon on the things <laughs> and whatnot. Well, with that suckling pig, you know, just coming around once a year, John kept thinking, well, I ought to be able to have 
some suckling pig more than once a year. And he said, notice, you know, the master, there's just lots of them running around squealing and stinking up the place. Seemed like he wouldn't miss if I just took one pig. <laughs> and so, you know, John kept thinking about that. And finally one night, you know, the devil got hold of him or something. And he just, he said, I got to go down and get me one of them pigs. So he snuck in, <laughs> snuck in, climbed over the fence and picked up one of them. <laughs> and he run back down to the cabin and took that thing in and cut him open and <laughs> dressed him up there and put him and cut him up all in and put him in the pot, big old iron pot, you know, them kind of, that you could hang over the fireplace there, and, and he just let that thing cook down, just cooking on down, oh, till the meat was just falling off the bone, and it just smelled so good. And he had him some, some corn pone left over from the night before, and he'd, he'd take that, you know, and he'd sop it in the gravy, and oh, he was, oh, that was just a laid back and belching, you know. <laughs> and, oh, this was a good meal, you know. And, well, next day, you know, he, he just couldn't get the taste of that pig out of his mouth, and he kept thinking about it, and he kept thinking, well, you know, it seemed like a, maybe, maybe I could get me one more pig, you know. Master, well, you know, there's so many of them. I just, <laughs> so that night he got him another pig. Well, that, that happened six, seven days, and finally, you know, even the master started noticing yeah, uh, you know, seemed like I had more pigs around here than this. And, you know, John was his overseer. So he called John, John, did, have you noticed that some of the pigs been missing? Well, you know, uh, Master, you know, I heard some barking down in the cane break, and I believe there's a family of foxes down there, and I believe old Brer Fox and <laughs> been in there and got one of them pigs, you know. Well, uh, John, we better try to keep an eye on them, you know. So John comes out, whew, man, I... I got away from that. <laughs> uh, maybe I better go back to eating possum again. And But, you know, once you done had the taste of pig, possum just won't do, Mm-mm. you know. And so <laughs> after a couple of days eating possum, he said, you know, maybe the master forgot about him. I, maybe I can just go in there and get me another Another one of them squealers. So he said, sure enough, he went down there two or three nights, got him a pig, cooked it up, and the master started nosing again. He said, you know, I believe that fox is just getting my, I'm going to have to go down there and check on this myself. So that night, Master went down, hid up in the bushes and had his eye on the pig pen there. And sure enough, he saw something kind of heading toward the pig pen there. And he said, well, you know, that that looks too big to be a fox. Well, well you know, I, I, believe, I believe that's John. And sure enough, John climbed over the fence and got there. <laughs> You're heading back down to the cabin. And Master thought, well, that couldn't have been John because John's, you know, John's a faithful servant. I, he went back up to the big house and was sitting there trying to think on it. And the more he thought about it, the more he said, you know, I believe that was John. Well, he, he said, I'm going to give him enough rope to hang himself. You know? So he waited, waited right good till he thought probably the pig was cooking pretty good. Then he went down and to the cabin, and sure enough, John's in there, just getting ready. Oh, it's smelling, smelling up the room good. And he goes, man, I can't wait to eat me some of this pig. About that time, you heard a knock on the door. Who's that? You know, acting all mannish and whatnot. And he goes, it's me, John. Master, open up. Uh, uh, oh, what, uh, uh, what do you want, Master? Well, let me in, John. I got to talk to you about it. Uh, no, my Master, you know, it wouldn't do for you to come into a lowly cabin, you know. Won't you go on back up to veranda? I'll be up there to see you in a little bit. John, let me in. Well, no, Master, now, you know, this is just a lowly cabin. You, you, you big shot. You ain't supposed to come. John, let me in. 
Well, what could he do? He went to the door and opened up the door. Master came in, you know, and John kept thinking, man, I just, that pig smelling that. But the master didn't say anything about it. He just kind of sat down at the little table there and started discussing the futures, you know, cotton futures and whatnot and what he planned to do next year and talking about the South 40, it's time to get that planted and whatnot. And John said, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to get away with it. About that time, the master said, John, uh, 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 what's that smell so good? Oh, 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 it's just this old opossum that I caught, you know, it's a scrawny old thing. It didn't mean much, but I thought I'd cook him up. And then, well, John, that sure smells good. I'd, I'd love myself some of that, some, some, some of that possum. Oh, no, Master, it wouldn't do. You know, you know, all your friends be talking about you eating possum like a slave. No, Master, you don't, you don't want to be eating them. John, I believe I, I believe I would do want to try some. No, Master, that, that, that. John, I want some of that possum. Well, what could John do? He got up from the table and walked over to the pot there and got him reached up over there on the shelf, got down this old wooden bowl and got a spoon. And just as he was about to reach to open up the lid of the pot, he looked over at Master. He said, Master, now, when I put this thing in this pot, it was a possum. Now, don't you be blaming me if it comes out a pig. <laughs> <laughs> And the master, master tried his best not to laugh, but he couldn't help himself. And he thought, well, you know, John, maybe maybe I'll let you have yourself just every now and then. You gave me such a good laugh. I'm going to let you just every now and then have a pig. And sure enough to his word, every now and then he'd give John a suckling pig. <laughs> so John was a trickster, and uh, keeping with our theme of hope, his, his tricks must have given hope to slaves who knew this story, but uh, did he really exist? I mean, how often were slaves actually permitted to steal the animals they were supposed to be tending? Well, the thing is, on the big plantations, you know, the stealing the, the chicken, stealing something out of the tater patch or the watermelon patch or whatnot, because they had to survive. You know, I'm going to use an improbable word here, a benevolent master. He would let them have a truck patch. I don't know if you folks use that expression, but a truck patch is like a small garden that you'd have for yourself. And if you were lucky enough to have somebody that would let you have a little truck patch, you ate pretty good. But other than that, you just had to eat the, the leftovers. In fact, there's lots of stories that I've heard that the kids, especially when they would sell the mothers and fathers away to another plantation, there was usually an older slave woman who had charge of the kids and that they would give them the slops, basically, the things like the guts, you know, which, you know, chitlins or the snouts or the pigtails. And they would kind of cook all that together in just a sort of a stew kind of thing. And they would actually pour it out into a trough. And those kids would eat at a trough like animals. Mm. Mm. So these kind of stories, whether John really existed or not, gave them hope. They never gave up hope. They always thought that someday that they would be free. You can enslave a person's body, but you can't enslave their mind. And as long as they had hope, they were free in their, in their minds. And that these songs and the stories reflect that. They never gave up hope. They never gave up hope. A lot of that body of, of work, the traditional songs, a lot of them were protest songs. 
I grew up singing a song called I Got Shoes. It was a slave song. And Sparky was talking about how even the basic necessities for a slave, they were hard to get. Shoes, shirts, piglets. (laughs) But in this song, I Got Shoes, they talk about, I got a robe, I got a crown, I got a harp, luxuries. When I get to heaven, not only am I going to have the basic necessities, but I'm also going to have these luxuries. And, uh, and furthermore, furthermore, yeah, right. the master, you know, at church talking about God and love and then comes home and presides over the decidedly unchristian institution, you know, enslaving their fellow man. And that's why that verse, everybody talk about heaven. Yeah, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. There they are singing it. I guess the masters didn't even get it, you know, what they were singing. But we could do a little bit of that. A snippet. A little snippet of that song. I got shoes, you You got got shoes, all got children got shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes and gonna walk all over God's heaven, 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 heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Gonna walk all over God's heaven. I got rope, you got rope. All God's children got a rope. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my robe and gonna shout all over God's heaven, 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 heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Gonna shout all over God's heaven. I got wings. You got wings, all God's children got wings. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my wings and gonna fly all over God's heaven. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, heaven. Gonna fly all over God's heaven. I got a crown, you got a crown, all God's children got got a crown. (laughs) So that song, I mean, kind of means hope. You know, I've lived long enough now, I can see (laughs) that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend toward justice. You know, I've got my guitar here, and I'd like to sing a song here. It's an old slave song, but it was one that was sung at the Christmas tide. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. When I a seeker I saw it both night and day I asked the Lord to help me He showed me how to pray Go tell it on the mountain over the hills everywhere Jesus Christ 
prayed both night and day. I asked the Lord to help me. He showed me the Thanks to Sparky and Rhonda Rucker, who celebrate their holidays in Maryville, Tennessee. Coming up, from tales of the Deep South to tales from the people of the Middle East and beyond. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies, and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hope for the holidays. That's the theme we're exploring in the Living on Earth holiday special. Now, if you think about the ancient city of Jerusalem, hope might not be the sentiment that immediately comes to mind. It's an area that's been torn by sectarian violence, yet sacred to Muslims, Christians, and Jews. Noah Baum grew up in Jerusalem, and she does have hope, hope for peace and understanding. These days, Noah lives just outside Washington, D.C., and tells stories, traditional and original, to help build bridges of understanding among all people. She's joining us now to share some of those stories and explain why stories are important. Noah Baum, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Now, in Jerusalem, I imagine, well, I don't think you see Santa Claus and reindeer and all that uh, in the December holidays. <laughs> <laughs> and I also wonder what this time of year is like for you in Washington. Yes, well, I certainly didn't grow up with Christmas. But since I've been living here in America, I just love this time of the year. This season for me is a symbol of the great spirit of America, the spirit of generosity and inclusiveness America is a place that strives and values diversity. America, for me, symbolizes a continuous quest for making things better and insisting on hope. And this time of year, more than anything, kind of encapsulates this spirit, hope as a value. And I just love that. When do you get news from Jerusalem or talk with family there? Well, that's hard to stay hopeful. I have to admit that these are very dark times, especially for people who wish for peace, strive for peace, work for peace. But the bottom line is that I don't know how to live without hope. And I feel very lucky and privileged to be a storyteller and grateful for stories because the stories help me stay connected to what's really important and stay connected to this spirit of faith and hope and generosity and inclusiveness, all the wonderful things about humanity. Stories, for me, they are healing they help us discover the possibilities for better relationships with ourselves and our communities and all of humanity, and especially in our earth. And these are really important things in these times. Stories hold the possibility of peace. When you tell stories and you see the connections that people make, you know that peace is possible and you have to stay hopeful. <laughs> and so you use stories to help sustain hope. Uh, tell me a story that is powerful enough to to sustain one's faith and hope in these times? I don't think there is one. I think every person will find different meaning in different stories. But I want to share with you a little one that speaks to that connection. What's it called? 
It's called The Fire in the Forest. It is told that in every generation, there are times when hope threatens to leave this world. At such times, it is said that the Baal Shem Tov, the great Jewish mystic, would go to a secret place in the forest where he would light a special fire and say a prayer evoking the most sacred name of the divine. And the danger would be averted and hope stayed alive. In later times, when disaster threatened once again, his disciple, the Magid of Mezritz, would go to that same place in the forest. But he would lift his eyes to the heavens and say, Ribono Olam, master of the universe, I do not know how to light that fire, but I can say the prayer, please let that be enough. And it was, and hope stayed in the world. And still later, when his disciple, Rabbi Moshe Leib of Sasov, would face dangerous times, he would go to that same place in the forest and say, Ribono Olam, master of the universe, I do not know how to light the fire, nor do I remember the words of the prayer, but I found my way to this place. Please let that be enough. And it was. Hope stayed alive. And many years later, when Rabbi Israel of Ritzen came to lead the people, he would sit in his armchair with his head in his hands and say, We no longer know how to light the fire, nor how to say the prayer. We cannot even find our way to that place, but we can still tell the story. Please let that be enough. And it was, and it still is. For as long as stories are told, hope stays in this world. No, this is, uh, this is such a powerful story. Where does it come from? What, what location are you talking about here? It comes from Eastern Europe, where the Baal Shem Tov came from, and where people lived in dire straits and a lot of poverty and suffered a lot of persecution. But I think um, faith and stories sustain people in hard times. They remind us of the possibilities. They hold the flame of the future. They hold the flame of what's really important. And so I think stories were always used. Humor was used and stories were used to help lift the spirit in dark times. Do you have a real-life story for us, Noah? Oh, I have lots of those. But there's one story that's extremely dear to my heart. As part of my work, I use storytelling for peace building. Mm -hmm. And I do interfaith workshops between Jews, Muslims, and Christians where I use the power of story to get people to connect with each other and to start listening to each other and discover their common humanity. And at one of these workshops in Rochester, New York, one of the people who participated in my workshop was a Muslim man from Rochester, Dr. Bilal Ahmed, and he told a story that made my jaw literally drop. And I begged his permission to craft the story for telling and to tell it to as many people as I can. And so he gave me the permission. And this is, this is the true story of a gift that um, he received from his father. And the name of this story? A Father's Gift. Bilal grew up in Lahore, in the Punjab province of Pakistan. When he was a little boy, there was a war between India and Pakistan, and he asked his father, why is there so much hate between the Muslims and the Hindus? His father said, when you're older, I'll explain. A few years later, when Bilal turned 13, his father took him to his uncle's house in the north. Bilal loved those visits. His uncle's house was just about the coolest place that you could imagine. 
The entire house was built around a courtyard, at the center of which was a beautiful fountain. All the rooms of the house, all the doors opened to that courtyard with the fountain. There was an open stairway that led to an open corridor with more doors opening, looking down onto this courtyard. But the best part about that house was the banyan tree in the back. Bilal loved climbing on it with his cousins. They would spend hours there just hanging out, telling jokes, telling stories. Bilal was just about to run out there and join his cousins when his father said, Bilal, come, it's time to answer your question. What question? Come. His father took him by the hand and led him up that flight of stairs and along that open corridor. And he stopped before the one door, the only door that was ever locked in that house. The attic room. The gin room. The gin the ghosts, the demons. His cousins were always telling stories about the ghosts and the demons that lived behind that door. Uh, Baba, I, I, I don't want to go in there. It's all right. There's something I need to show you. Come. His father unlocked the door and led him inside. He pulled the string and lit the single light bulb from the ceiling. The room was musty and dark. There were old furniture around there and his grandfather's old musket and helmet from the World War. There was a big trunk there that his father now opened, and he took out a book, a big leather-bound book, and he said, Bilal, this is our Bahi, the book of our family's history. It is very old. It is passed through the generations from the oldest son to the oldest son. That is why it is here in your uncle's house, for he is my oldest brother. I want you to look at it, but be careful, it is very old. Bilal opened the book. There were some empty pages, and, and then there was a page with names. Oh, about ten of them, and he recognized his name, Bilal Ahmed Sahi, next to his brother Jamal and his sister Sarah, his mother Naima Chima Sahi, his father Gulam Ahmed Sahi. Hey, that's us. Yes, his father smiled. That's us. That's our family. Keep looking. And so he started turning the pages. There were about ten names on each page. and He saw the names of cousins and uncles and aunts, grandparents, people he knew, people he heard about, page after page of names. And suddenly he noticed that the names changed. He read Sinj Gurmit Sinj, Sinj Gurmit, Sinj Sahi? That's not a Muslim name. No, his father said, that is a Sikh name. They are your family too. Keep looking. And so he kept turning the pages. The paper was so old it was almost disintegrating in his hand. And suddenly he read, Anil? What's that? That's a Hindu name. <gasps> Hindu? Yes, they are your family too. Keep looking. And so he kept turning the pages. After some time, it was no longer paper but parchment. And after a while, he couldn't recognize the handwriting or the language. He, he looked up at his father. He said, I don't understand. What does this mean? His father said, you asked about the hate. Remember, I wanted you to see this. I wanted you to see that God lives in everything. And don't you 
ever let anyone tell you to hate another, because you could see they are all here, Muslims, Sikh, Hindus, Christians, Jews, they are all your family. Well, Bilal was 13 years old, and all he could think about was how to get out of that musty room and join his cousins on the tree. Years passed. Bilal left Pakistan. He became a physician, married, three children, settled in Rochester, New York. And about two years after his father passed away, Bilal heard about the National Geographic's Genome Project. The National Geographic's Genome Project allows people to send samples of their DNA. They analyze it, and they can send you a map that traces the travels of your ancestors throughout history. And if you want, you can also find out who, still living in this world, is genetically related to you. Apparently, there are certain markers that are specific to certain population groups. And if your markers match the markers of someone else, they are genetically related to you, and they give them your email. And so Bilal wanted to honor his father's memory, who was always so interested in genealogy and history. He sent for the kit. He took a swab from the inside of his cheek and put it in a little glass vial with a number on it. No name. No name at all. And a few weeks later, the results arrived. And there was a great map of the entire world tracing the travels of his ancestors. And like each and every one of us upon this planet, they all began in Africa. And from there, migrated over thousands and thousands of years up to Ukraine, Denmark, Poland. About 5,000 years ago, migrated to the area that today is called India. And about 1,000 years ago, settled in what today is called Pakistan. And a few weeks later, the emails began to arrive. The emails from his genetic relations. And he received an email from somebody called L. Freiburg. Another email came from someone called David Barry Baum. And another from Morris Kresnow, Clayton Schultz, Jack Salstein, Ed Levitan. It appears that according to the DNA results, the closest genetic relations of Dr. Bilal Ahmed, the Pakistani Muslim, are Jews from a small village in eastern Poland. And it was then that he remembered. And he turned to his then 13-year-old daughter and he said, You know, when I was about your age, my father took me to my uncle's house and he showed me our bahi, the book of our family's history. And he told her the story. And he's been telling that story ever since. He wants his children to always remember his father's words. Don't you ever, don't you ever let anyone tell you to hate another. Because you can see, they're all here. They're all your family. They are all your family. That sounds like a critical message wherever there's a conflict, huh? Well, you can understand why my jaw dropped, don't you? <laughs> What happens when you share stories like this? Oh, my goodness. It's the greatest gift that you could imagine. 
That's what allows me to stay hopeful in the world. Uh, when I share stories, you just feel that the audience breathes with you. And there's a silence that falls after the story ends and people wipe tears and, and their face shines. And then they come, come to me and they start telling me their stories. And it's wonderful. When you hear a good story, it evokes your own stories. It evokes your connection to who you are and to your ancestors and to your heart. And so people start sharing and you discover how, how wonderful we really are as humans. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Noah Baum uses storytelling to build bridges of understanding. She's also author of the upcoming book, A Land Twice Promised, an Israeli Woman's Quest for Peace. Before you go, of course, if you have a book, there must be a story behind the book. Can you tell us briefly about it? Yes, and it's the story behind my friendship with a Palestinian woman that I met when I came to this country. And based on our friendship and our family stories, I created a performance piece that's called A Land Twice Promise. And the book is a, a memoir of growing up in Jerusalem, coming to this country, meeting her, and the whole process of creating the show and the reactions that I've had around the world to it. It is about sustaining hope. Noah celebrates the holidays, lives year-round for that matter, just outside of Washington, D.C. Noah, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays to you. And happy holidays to you. And if you'd like to get more information about Noah Bob, just go to our website, LOE.org. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Today's crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Helen Palmer, Adlai Chen, Jenny Doring, and Lauren Hinkle. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jake Rigo, Noel Flatt, John Gesso, Miles B. Smith, Michael Ponder, and Jonathan Cherry. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Happy Holidays. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the protection of the environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Candida Fund and Trinity University Press, publisher of Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. 80 visionaries who agree with Pope Francis, climate change is a moral issue for each of us tupress.org, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. PRI, Public Radio International.